If you owned a business and you knew a simple change you could make to your operations that could boost your annual sales revenue by around a billion dollars, would you do it? Well, that's about how much money Chick-fil-A foregoes every year to keep their doors closed on Sundays. Today on InStoried, we ask the question, what makes a thing sacred? And is anything sacred in our culture today? We'll also talk about Chick-fil-A's story and why you can thank Genesis chapter 2 for getting paid time off from work. All coming right up. Hello everyone, welcome to InStoried. I'm Corey Smith and I have a question for you. Now I want you to just say the first thing that pops in your mind. Are you ready? Name something that is holy. All right, time's up. What's your answer? Because I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think I know what you said. I'm going to say it's one of two things. It's either God, which if you said Jesus or Holy Spirit, I'm counting all of those as one because that's just the Trinitarian thing to do. Or the other answer you might have given was the Bible. Lots of Bibles say Holy Bible right there on the cover. So the cover of your Bible might have been the first thing that popped in your mind. I'm guessing those two answers, God or the Bible, cover most of you. And those are good answers. But here's what's interesting to me. Of all the times the word holy shows up in the Bible, and it's a bunch of times, it's usually not God or Scripture itself that is being described as holy. This is especially true in the Old Testament. New Testament skews this quite a bit because in the New Testament, when you see the word holy, it's going to be followed by spirit better than half the time. But Holy Spirit is a proper name, so I think that's distinct from what we're talking about. So what kind of things are called holy in the Bible? Well, it can be places like the temple or the tabernacle. It can be food that is being offered to God. It can even be people, not just priests or prophets either. The whole nation of Israel is said to be holy. Now, their being called holy has nothing to do with their behavior, by the way. Holy is not a designation they can win because they work for it somehow. We'll, we'll come back to this idea a little bit later. For now, let's consider this. What is the very first thing that gets called holy in the Bible? It happens pretty early on, only the second chapter. It's not a person or a place, so not God, not Adam or Eve, not the Garden of Eden. It's actually the seventh day. It says, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So let's explore this for a minute. First, what does holy mean? Well, like the question I asked you at the beginning of the episode, our most common associations are going to have something to do with God or religion, but it can have a more general meaning. When something is holy, it is set apart for a certain purpose. God calls this seventh day in Genesis chapter 2 holy because that's the day that he rests and he sets it apart from the previous six days for that purpose. Rest in the Hebrew is Sabbath, so on the seventh day, God Sabbathed. He declares this day holy, set apart for the purpose of doing what he himself did, which is rest. 
And this turns out to be a vital rhythm for Israel. Their whole calendar is built around the number seven. They rest from their work like God did on the seventh day each week. They have seven feast days each year. They even have a Sabbath year every seven years where they don't work the ground. They don't farm it. So even the ground gets a rest every seven years. So really, the whole creation ends up participating in God's Sabbath rest through these cycles. And then you have the year of Jubilee. Now, this one is really wild. After you've had seven cycles of seven-year periods, so 49 years, the next year, the 50th year, you have a year of Jubilee. Now, because it only happens every 50 years, you're probably only going to live to see it once or twice. But what happens in the year of Jubilee is it's this massive economic reset. Debts are canceled, so people who sold themselves into debt slavery are freed. And if you sold your family land to someone else, you get it back. Because of this practice, you basically couldn't sell it off permanently, only lease it for farming. But I think the year of Jubilee is such a fascinating concept because it fully recognizes how things tend to go in human economies over time. Some people are pretty savvy in their dealings with others. Some people aren't. Sometimes people take advantage. And sometimes people are just plain irresponsible. But the end result is wealth and resources and power tend to aggregate around some people and not others. And land ownership in particular is a zero-sum game by its very nature. So the year of Jubilee basically moves all the player pieces on the Monopoly board back to go. And if you were bankrupt, you get to get back in the game. But the point is, is that Israel, because of their calendar, had sacred time built into their weeks, their months, and their years. Now, sacred is just another word for holy, by the way. Sacred and holy are the same word in the Hebrew. Israel organized their time and their lives around who God is, what He had done for them, and being like Him since they were made in His image, like we talked about last week. Certain days were sacred. They were holy, set apart for the purpose of reorienting them squarely back into God's story each and every week. This is something I think that we've lost along the way, particularly with what I see in American culture today. The notion of the sacred is, well, it's fading fast. And 10,000-foot view, I'll tell you why I think that is. It's not just that the sacred is usually associated with religion and religion is on the decline in the U.S., although that is a factor. More broadly than that, sacred implies boundaries. And by and large, we, we just don't like boundaries. We struggle to maintain needed boundaries in relationships. We struggle with healthy boundaries between our professional and personal lives. Technology plays a big role in that part because it's so intrusive. We don't like having boundaries on our finances, so we often overextend. And we don't like having boundaries on our time, so we binge watch television into the wee hours of the morning. We know we need boundaries. We just typically would rather not have them. 
So take Chick-fil-A. Have you ever had a craving for waffle fries and gone through the frustration of pulling all the way into a Chick-fil-A parking lot only to realize they're closed in the middle of the day? Because I sure have. (laughs) Chick-fil-A has a hard boundary with its customers, and it's called Sunday. And they're a huge brand, but they've always done it ever since the beginning. You go to the About page on their website, and here's what it says. Our founder, Truett Cathy, having worked seven days a week in restaurants, open 24 hours a day, saw the importance of closing on Sundays so that he and his employees could set aside one day to rest, to enjoy time with their families and loved ones, or worship if they choose, a practice we still uphold today. It's a practice of Sabbath. And and yes, the Sabbath for Israel was Saturday, and this is Sunday we're talking about, but that's not the point. Truett Cathy saw a problem inherent to the always available, on-demand, 24-7 culture that we have become. So he put up a boundary. He took one day and he set it apart and made it sacred. Now, when he first started back in 1946, restaurants that closed on Sundays probably weren't the vast minority that they are today, but there aren't many restaurants today, especially at that level, who are doing that. An entire day's worth of sales is hard to say no to, let alone a billion dollars worth of sales. But if you're going to set a boundary, you need to be able to say no. And Chick-fil-A always has. They even have a location in Mercedes-Benz Stadium, home of the professional football team, the Atlanta Falcons, which is kind of shocking when you consider NFL teams play most of their games on Sundays. The Super Bowl was even played there in 2019 to a capacity crowd of over 70,000 people. And I guarantee you, a lot of them were willing to pay stadium pricing for a spicy chicken deluxe sandwich, large fries, and a large sweet tea. That's my order, usually. Well, those people had to eat something else that day because even the Chick-fil-A in that stadium was closed on Super Bowl Sunday. Their commitment to the sacredness of being closed on Sunday seems just unshakable. And I hope it always is, because it's really a powerful testament to the world of the importance of uncompromising commitment to something that, that transcends all the things the rest of the world values, especially money, because they cannot be bought. And, and I love it. I've always liked the band Switchfoot, going all the way back to my college days. I think John Foreman writes beautifully, thought-provoking song lyrics. Here's a line from him. When nothing is sacred, there's nothing to lose. When nothing is sacred, all is consumed. And if you've ever let your guard down and didn't hold the line on one or more of your sacred boundaries, when you didn't maintain holiness in some area of your life, you know exactly what he's talking about. This happens at a personal level, but also at a societal level. Order, even if it's just your own inner order, 
starts to break down at some level when you fudge on sacred boundaries because sacredness and order go hand in hand. So with that thought, let's turn our attention back to Genesis 1 and 2. Last week, we talked about God creating the world and everything in it in six days. You remember how he did it? He didn't start with nothing and snap his fingers like a genie and things start popping up. He started with something, an earth that was formless and void. And on those first three days, he gave form to the formless by setting boundaries, day and night, sky and waters, waters and dry land. God creates the world by ordering the world. He puts it in good working order. He sets aside sacred space as habitation for the things he makes on days four, five, and six. And then on day seven, he creates sacred time, a day that is holy. We still have holy days today. In fact, that's still what we call them holidays. <laughs> Just change the Y and holy to an I and smash the two words together and well, there you go. We even rest. We Sabbath on those days because many of us get paid time off for federal holidays. But it's, it's not the same because the rest that Israel took on the seventh day was more than just taking a day off from work, although that was important. They are resting because God rested, but they are also resting with God. In Genesis 2, God doesn't just rest somewhere far off in outer space. He rests in the world that he has just created, with the people he has just created. He's with them. Each day that we read about in Genesis 1 ends with the same formula. There was evening, and then there was morning. That happens on days 1 through 6. But it's curiously absent from day 7. There's an ancient interpretation of that omission that I think has some merit. What if evening never came on that seventh day? What if the man and the woman were just supposed to remain living with God right there in their midst forever in one long eternal day? That, of course, doesn't happen because it all goes off the rails in the very next chapter. But what if that was God's intent? When you flip to the back of the Bible and take a peek at the ending all the way in Revelation 21, here's what you see happening. God comes down from heaven once more to live with humans always. The dwelling place of God is with us. And it says that when that happens... There isn't a need for sun or moon anymore because God's very presence gives light. So there's no night ever again because he's resting with them, living with them just like he did in the beginning in one never-ending eternal day. It feels like we're a long way away from that right now. But what I'm hearing as I read this story is that that was how it was, and that is how it's going to be again. God with us. And in the meantime, we can recover some of this reality if we can recover the holiness of setting aside sacred time. Time that is intended for speaking to God in prayer and listening closely to what He might have to say to us. 
And it's hard because the world is very noisy and distracting. But not only just sacred time itself, but sacred time spent with holy people. And by that, I don't mean people who are holy by virtue of their moral accomplishments. I said earlier that in the Bible, Israel is referred to as God's holy people. The Bible also pulls no punches when it describes all of the ways that Israel fails to measure up to what our idea of holy people might look like, and neither do I. But remember, the foundational concept of holiness is set-apartness, and Israel was set apart by God for His purposes. They didn't always live according to God's purposes, but their life choices were intended to reflect their holy status, not make them holy to begin with. What I mean by that is their actions do not make them holy. God has already done that. But their actions should look a certain way because they are holy. So when I say we can recover some of what it is to have God with us by setting aside sacred time and spending time with holy people, I don't mean people who have their act together all the time. I don't know any of those people anyway. I mean people who have said yes to Jesus' offer to come to him if they are weary and heavy laden and run down and tired because he offers rest through his own life and patterning our lives after his. The polls are quite clear. Religion in the U.S. is on the decline Church attendance is waning, and although COVID accelerated that, the trend had already begun, and people increasingly identify as spiritual but not religious, which I think is much more preferable than religious but not spiritual, or neither spiritual nor religious, but I suspect that identifying as spiritual but not religious is, for a good many who'd say that about themselves, a... Reaction to the Christian landscape of the past 50 or 60 years. Your church-going neighbor never misses a worship service, but you see them treat the young waiter who gets their order wrong at the restaurant in a way that, that just makes you cringe. And you might wonder, who is benefiting from my neighbor's regular church attendance? It doesn't seem to be my neighbor. It certainly isn't that young waiter. But what about your church-going neighbor who lives on the other side of you, who has their life group over once a month? But maybe one or two times out of the year, it's just this drunken bash around the holidays. And you're not trying to pass judgment, but isn't that just wildly inconsistent? So then, what's the point? Where's the meaning in it? And we see these kinds of things and think that the forms of organized religion simply don't deliver. So we'll just steer clear of the church, but we'll still keep the light on for Jesus. Spiritual, just not religious. But you know what? It's good to take inventory sometimes. It's good to be honest about the human tendency to settle into life and go through the motions. And religion is an easy thing to go through the motions on. But the goal of religion is always spiritual. 
And good religious practice provides forms for spiritual growth. If religious practice is like the framing of a house, spiritual growth is the rest of the house fully built out. But if you remain content to just frame it out, you'll never have a finished house. You've got to build it out. So when you're building it out, bear in mind that there are various kinds of religious practices available to help undergird our efforts. See how the people of God in the Bible practice ways of opening themselves up to the Spirit of God. There are also great resources out there, and I'll list a few in the show notes, detailing practices of the church both past and present. Some intended for solitude, others intended for practicing together in community. A great example of one that a friend and I were recently discussing is the value of the liturgical calendar. Most churches will at least mark Easter Sunday and the Sunday closest to Christmas with special events or worship services, but the liturgical calendar takes the church on a journey into the story of Jesus throughout the year, providing even further structure for intentionally focusing on his life, death, and resurrection. It's similar to how intentional Israel was with their calendar, with their marking special seasons and feasts throughout the entire year. It's a great practice, especially intended for the church as a community. Fasting and praying can be practiced together, but also on an individual level. The point being, and we'll, we'll land the plane here for the week, that the establishment of sacred rhythms of life that we live into in order to help keep us firmly planted in the story of who we are as the people that God has created to live with and how our lives are shaped as a result. All right, speaking of people God created, that's where we are headed next week as we go further into Genesis chapter 2. We'll find out what real men are made of and women too. We'll see you next week. We hope you're enjoying and storied. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review so others can find us. We'll see you next week.